Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is Tanner Greer, who was a writer and journalist in based out of Taiwan for a number of years and uh, is recently relocated back to the United States and is working on a book. So, Tanner, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so we want to talk today about China. Uh, this is a big topic, a growing topic of interest in the United States. And I thought it would make since to start with talking about how the government of China, the people, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Republic of China, how they view themselves and what their aims are. Mm. Uh, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a big question. Um, and I would say, you know, uh, my myself, I'm not I'm not a China expert, but um you know, obviously, uh, the government of China is not is not a freedom loving freedom loving government, and there's a lot of a lot of issues there. But you know, they 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 are increasingly an economic powerhouse, uh, increasingly prominent on the world stage, and so that raises the question of you know what what does China want? What how do they see themselves, and what are their strategic goals? So. Hmm. Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, sure. I think, I mean, this is an important issue, and it's one I've written about before. And in fact, actually, in the May issue of Tablet Magazine, I have a piece coming out that addresses this exact question. What does the party want from the world? And I think we can maybe take a little bit of a step back and first say, what does, like, what do average Chinese people want, and then you can look on top of that, what is the the Communist Party leadership? How do they move from that average Chinese aspirational goal to something more specific to their political system? And I I think the overwhelming thing that that (laughs) the Chinese people want for their country is wealth and power. There's a famous book with that title that talks about, you know, since basically 1850, this is what Chinese reformers have wanted is to do changes that would make their country the most powerful and wealthy in the world in a way that they once think it once was. Um, the Chinese nationalist narrative kind of goes like this, that once upon a time, China was a great, powerful country that all the other countries in the world that knew of them honored, respected, and felt like they were the seat of human civilization. And that's not an entirely inaccurate narrative. But then China has these Manchu foreign conquerors take over. They lose their spirit of innovation. They fall behind. And then they have what they call the hundred years of humiliation. This is a set phrase in Chinese. This hundred years of humiliation it starts more or less with the opium wars and extends to um, the reunification of China under the auspices of the Communist Party with the Japanese being defeated in World War II, the Westerners being kicked out, with the communists taking control. That, that's 100 years of humiliation, they describe it as. And now the job of China is to kind of, you might say, for China to be made great again. The phrase that Xi Jinping uses all the time is national restoration. That China needs to be restored to its former place of glory. And they're a little bit cagey when they describe this to international audiences. They, they don't usually describe directly saying we want to be number one. But when they're talking to domestic audiences, this is kind of clearly the subtext that they want to be the, the center of everything that's going on in the world. And the Communist Party of China tells the Chinese people, when you look at their propaganda, like the narrative that they tell the people for why why they need a communist dictatorship to be in charge, what the purpose of the party is. This is more or less the answer they give them. The answer they give them isn't really, oh, you need us because without us, you will personally not be very wealthy. That's I, I've met almost no Chinese person who's ever said, um, 
I like the government because I'm wealthy now. They, 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 they say that comes from their own efforts. But what they will say is China has made our country, like the Communist Party has made our country wealthy. It has made our people strong. It has restored our national honor. And the Communist Party says, yeah, basically they say two things. If, it's not, if we don't exist and we go back, we become Syria or we go back to the warlord era. China is divided in civil war. And then with us, we are the only thing that can make China the most powerful, richest, most scientifically advanced center of the world that it clearly deserves to be. And that is a narrative that appeals to the Chinese man on the street as well as to Chinese intellectuals. Um, so I might answer the first part of your question of what do uh, like what do Chinese people, what does China want? And I think regardless of who was in charge of China, communists or Democrats or something else altogether, the Chinese people would have that aspiration to be number one. Um, and that's a, that's a kind of natural one. You know, it's most countries in the world have wanted that at one point or another. I would say the average Chinese person's kind of very like 19th century view of, of power and stuff. Communists are more sophisticated. But average Chinese, that does that make sense, what I've said so far? Uh, yes, and I, I did want to ask about that. Um, and if you have further for the answer, you don't have to, but uh, this probably leads into the answer. But uh, I did want to ask how that translates into the you know, governing ideology of the party, mm. uh, which uh, is supposed to be at least ostensibly internationalist. Uh, although, of course, in practice, it has not always worked out that way, either for Chinese communism or anywhere else. So this is a kind of interesting question. Um, and they have, communist theorists have thought really hard about this question. If you look at the Chinese constitution, the constitution for the People's Republic of China, and for the, I mean, sorry, for the Communist Party of China. Um, it says quite clearly that the purpose and goal of the party is communist revolution for the entire world. That goal is still there. And that is personally meaningful to many of the communist leadership. Not all of them. Uh, and a lot of, a lot of Communist Party members, which I've met uh, when I was living in Beijing, or outside of China, they they don't take that rhetoric. Some of them don't take the rhetoric very seriously. They don't they don't believe in it. They think communism is as a dead faith in a way. But for people like They're the Episcopalians of communism. Well, but I will argue that for the people at the very top, it's different. Xi Jinping talks about communism in almost religious terms. He uses words like faith, um, and. He talks about the heavens that will be made. He talks about having sublime experience. He has a conversion story, um, or which I can tell you if you're interested. He has a whole conversion story, though, of how he basically became, like, had this faith in the end communist goal. And he says in his own speeches, uh, I've translated one. If you want to look up my name, Tanner Greer, for the magazine Palladium, and then like Xi Jinping, if you type that into Google, the first thing will come up is a, a speech where he, he talks about some of these themes that I translated just for the world to see. Because it's actually, it's a fairly good encapsulation of what he's thinking and what he sees the contest between China and the West kind of going over the long term. And one of the things he says in this speech is that it's important for the communist cadres to believe that in the end, there will be something like communism because that gives them the spirit of self-sacrifice that their forefathers had, that the people who went on the long march, the people who fought in the Civil War, the, the willingness to take a hit for the future is something that he believes kind of comes from communism. But he also says this. He says he quotes Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping said it might be generations and generations and generations and generations until this happens, that you have like communism for the whole world. And so their job isn't to, like the job for the moment, the job of the party in the 21st century is not to try and bring about a global communist revolution today or tomorrow. It's instead 
to safeguard communism and socialism, or what they are now calling socialism with Chinese characteristics, so that in the future, future generations will be placed to bring that future about. They're, 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 they accept a gradualist vision instead of a revolutionary vision of, of attaining this aim. And it's kind of interesting because traditionally, like if you were to go back to the like Mao Zedong time, there was a phrase where it said, only communism can save China. Nowadays, this phrase has kind of changed where they say only China can save socialism. Um, and they believe it. And so I guess that kind of brings the question, of, well, what is the goal? The goal is not to do like a Maoist style spreading revolution across all the world. They would instead say that their goal is they're going to build a model of government that is not built on liberal Western principles, but which outcompetes it, which is, quote, superior to the capitalist model. And they talk about this. They talk about how the capitalists are not their friends, how the capitalists, which is, which is us, are um, inevitably going to be in a situation of, of kind of like conflict, ideological conflict is how they describe it. That they are, we're still playing the same game that, the same ideological conflict that started in the Cold War. And they will condemn what they call, quote unquote, Cold War thinking in the sense that they believe that it's not necessarily zero sum. There's areas where we can cooperate, they will say, but it's kind of like a temporary accommodation accommodation while they build this system which will be quote superior to our own and then they want to after creating this superior system they uh talk about how they want to create a, a better world they call this world xi jinping's phrase for this world is the community of common destiny and the idea of this community of common destiny is that like, the communist leaders clearly articulate a future where there are no alliance systems in the world there are no blocks so the American alliance system will recede and instead the world will be knit together in kind of this state-led economic infrastructure at which China will be the center. And the technology that comes from China, the science that comes from China will be shared with the rest of the world. Many countries will probably take what they call um, Chinese lessons is what they'll call it. Lessons from the Chinese model, lessons from Chinese history that are appropriate for the development of the rest of the world. They use a lot of these set phrases, which are, this is a communist tick, I suppose, using these kind of set phrases to describe normal concepts. But what they essentially mean by that is that, yeah, more and more of the world will try to emulate what they are doing. And the West's ability to interfere with their model will be gone. And military-wise, they, they won't be something that can be contained. They don't quite imagine a, we're going to go and establish colonies everywhere. We're going to use the point of the gun to force everyone to become our model. But they do imagine, basically, that they're in a what they call an ideological competition with the West. And this competition has various subparts, economic, technological, military, that they have to protect them themselves from. And the way they do that is by building this new economic order with them at the center, which will allow them to kind of dictate to the world the way they feel like we dictate right now to the world. The way our ideology dictates to the world what is good and what is bad, Hollywood, our academic theories. Or things like the IMF, they would much prefer to be a world where they're the ones who are kind of in control of those different aspects of soft power. Because they're afraid that if they don't have that world, if they, like the existing international order is set up against them, it's a threat to them. And so they want to build a world that doesn't include or which the aspects that we have have been kind of co-opted, say like the WHO. They're fine with the WHO as long as it doesn't recognize Taiwan, right? As long as it's something that isn't under their control. That's the long game. And they, they even have a, a date for when they want this to be accomplished, 2049. 100 years. Well, it's 100 years from the foundation of the PRC. 
So they basically say, yeah, by the date 2049, we want to have all of China, and what they mean by that is Taiwan, Hong Kong, et cetera, be united under us. We want to be the world's, well, they'll, they describe it as one of the leading military, scientific, economic powers. Uh, but what they basically mean by that is they want to be at the top, and they would prefer it to be a system by that point where, like, the alliance system that has been built against them as they perceive it has kind of dissolved as the various powers realize that they have much more to gain from being part of the Chinese economic sphere than being part of some military political alliance that causes them to lose out on the benefits of trade and technology that come from this, this Chinese center. Um, does it, does that answer your question? Uh, it does, and it leads me to a follow up, uh, which you know I think calls for some, uh, you know, clear eyed self assessments, right? Without flattery. Mm-hmm. So, so that question is if so if there if if you know the goal is for them to become kind of a. a ideological alternative to you know western liberal capitalism that seems to be more competent and more attractive uh, for other folks etc i mean uh, how how are they doing right how successful are they being in that mm. according to who to their own people, well, to the rest of the world. Well, so I guess I would ask uh, it. So I, I mean, l- l- let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, so the coronavirus, the new coronavirus, SARS COVID two. Yes, uh, as we all know, originated in uh, in China in Wuhan, and at least for. Uh, a lot since then there have uh, been spread a number of alternate theories uh, by the Chinese government that uh, either it uh, originated with the United States military uh, more recently I, I guess there's some talk about how it, it actually came from Africa I don't know exactly what that's about but um, so this you know this is kind of a counter theory that's been put out there and it, on on one level, you can say, well, you know, that's not true. It didn't. It didn't really come. It didn't really come from the from the U.S. It came from Wuhan, some somehow. Uh, but of course, it also matters what people believe, and not just what Americans believe, but what do people in India believe? What do people in the Philippines believe? What do people in Kenya believe or Mexico? Right. So, I mean, I'm not. I don't expect you to have done some sort of comprehensive research about this, but if you could give a sense of, you know, I, I mean, is this, are these, are these things where people throughout the world, in other parts of the world, uh, and even some in the West, as they look at uh, the Chinese response to the outbreak versus the Western government's response to the outbreak, as they look at, you know, different Economic indicators, other things. Uh, are, are, are is China making headway in putting themselves forward as a viable alternative, or is it more, uh, if not vanity, gen, you know, it's aspirational, but it doesn't seem to be making a lot of headway as yet. Um, that's an interesting question, and one of the things you have to think about too. Anytime that, all right, let me think about how to answer this question. So one of the things you have to think about when it comes to things said by people in the Chinese system is that there's three potential audiences for any, any pronouncement that's given. And each one has a different set of incentives. One is the Chinese, like average people themselves. And a lot of things might really be made for domestic consumption. Another thing, another another audience is, is the Westerners or the foreigners, people who are outside of China and anywhere. It doesn't have to be Westerners. It could be Africans or Indians or people in the, you know, 
Palau or some islands in the South Pacific, they also received messages from the Chinese. Um, and then the final message recipient is your boss in the Communist Party of China. And a very large percentage of like, I think Xi Jinping type worship is signaling inside the, the, the party. Um, I'm reminded of a, a story from the Soviet, from Soviet Russia. I think it was um, Alexander, I don't speak Russian, how you say his last name, Solitsyn. He tells us, there you go. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I speak Chinese. I can't do any of these European names. Um, right. But he has a story in, in one, of his, one of his books. I don't remember which one, um, but I remember the story where he basically talks about how at some point, some communist commissar is giving a speech and then everybody rises up and claps and they're clapping and they're clapping and they're clapping and the claps go on for one minute and then two minutes and then three minutes and then four minutes and everyone's looking around and everyone else and they're all just clapping and it's kind of ridiculous because you shouldn't be clapping for five minutes, six minutes at this point. But everyone keeps on clapping because they don't want to be the first one to stop. The signal that would send to the superiors, right, is that if you're the first one to stop, that's, well, that puts you on a list. Um, there's an element to the same sort of showmanship in the Communist Party of China. Uh, a good example of this is the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is the, is kind of the what Xi Jinping has labeled this attempt to build an economic order that goes across the whole world, mostly starting through infrastructure investments on the Chinese side in these different countries. And the Belt and Road Initiative has not worked out very well. It's been kind of a failure thus far um no one's gonna tell like like it's hard to tell that to xi jinping because it's very closely associated with his his name it was actually put into the constitution in the last uh, great five-year meeting and i remember i was in beijing at that time when that happened and i remember seeing all of these banks and these companies putting up these giant posters talking about how they love the Belt and Road and the Belt and Road Initiative was going to be like, they were going to build the future of the Belt and Road Initiative with this company's logo on it. And you look at that and you're like, why are they doing that? What's the purpose? Is it because they believe in it? Is it because they want to convince these foreigners who are all coming to the city for this giant Belt and Road conference? No, it's because they want to show how loyal they are to Xi Jinping. They want to show how loyal they are to the party. And so you get this kind of signaling race inside the party where people try to out-loyal each other. And I mean, you, I think you, you can see this in America too sometimes, you know, like maybe with social justice warriors, for example, where there's this kind of race to the bottom to, to show, you know, out, uh, be who's offended the most kind of thing. And partially what we see in China with, I'd say over the last six months, this new diplomatic strategy is partially this phenomenon going on where all these embassies over the world are feeling a lot of pressure to show that they are defenders of China. Um, because this, this kind of aggressive coming out and accusing Western governments, accusing Western, well, not just Western, even just foreign governments and foreign people of not respecting the Chinese people, of doing bad things. This actually preceded the coronavirus by about six months. And one of the one of the main guys involved, he's a a diplomat from China named Zhao Lijian. He was the ambassador or one of the main guys in Pakistan. And he was he was promoted recently to be in charge of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, one of the spokesmen there. And that was a signal to all these people across the the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that, oh, you need to be like, it, the way to get promoted is to be vocally, aggressively, conspiratorially against other countries and defending China on everything. Because this guy, he was famous for going up against, against the West and saying what they're saying about Xinjiang is false. But there are no concentration camps. Really, it's worse in your countries. 
and he gets promoted. And so now there's this big pressure all across, I think, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for people to kind of like say crazy things. But this is only part of it. The uh, CCCTV and Xinhua also reported on some of these news things, and those are very centrally controlled central propaganda organs. So somebody, perhaps she himself, was saying it's okay to spread these ideas. I suspect they were mostly doing it because they wanted to kind of shift blame internally, anger that's internal abroad against America. And that it really, they weren't trying to convince the rest of the world. They're mostly trying to uh, solve a domestic problem. But my sense is that certain parts of the world, it's kind of worked. Like places like Egypt, which is like very anti-American already. I see people from there tweeting about how it's convincing to them. But for most of the world, it's really backfired. Uh, it's, it's created a huge backlash in the United States. Europeans are not happy with the, the Chinese right now. I don't know if you saw the Germany's largest newspaper, the, the editorial they wrote, the anti-Xi editorial. Um, yeah. It's not, but most of Asia is not very happy with China right now either. So most of, it's kind of backfired. They, they got a little bit too cocky, I think. So let me ask about uh, Xi specifically, and then I know Doug wants has some questions about Taiwan that he wants to talk about. Hmm. Uh, but um, I don't know a lot about Xi. Uh, the only thing I really know about him is that his dad was a Communist Party bigwig who ended up getting persecuted, and I guess he did too, during the Cultural Revolution, and his response to that was to his dad getting persecuted by the communist party was to try and join the communist party uh which i don't i don't know that that's how i would have reacted in a similar situation but perhaps perhaps i would have um so i mean what he seems to be um and i don't want to romanticize any of the prior leaders of the ccp but he seems to have a bit of a harder edge to him than at least the last couple of previous leaders, both in terms of uh, consolidating power to himself and then, you know, some of, I mean, you were just talking earlier about some of the signals he was sending about, you know, who, who, who gets promoted and what kind of line they, they take. So, I mean, what kind of, what can you, what can you tell us about, uh, she and what makes him tick mm. so a book i recommend on this which is probably the best that's been written about it so far is by there's a book by francois bogon called inside the mind of xi jinping i wrote a review of it for foreign policy magazine if readers just want to read that but it's a really really readable good book it's not very long like 120 pages or so and so i i strongly recommend this book all the time to people she, as a person, is kind of interesting. Like, so there's, there's, there's two things going on here. One is just the state that China is in. And partially, I think she was chosen for the job that he has. The, the party wanted somebody who would be harder at this point in time. But his personal history kind of leads up to that. So, you, like, we can kind of go back to, like, what you said. So he's a princeling, as they say, kind of like, you know, red Communist Party royalty. And during the Communist Party's Cultural Revolution, where the party's fighting against itself, his family was very heavily persecuted. His father was imprisoned. His family members were tortured. His sister was killed. He was banished. He was banished halfway across the country, out to Shanxi, to the place where the communists, uh, to, basically to Yan, where Mao Zedong hid in the caves during World War II. It's kind of like... That area of China to a communist is maybe what like Valley Forge is to an American. And this is where he was was sent. And he ran away the first time. He, I think he was 13 years old, 14 years old. He ran away, came back to Beijing. He didn't want to be part of any of this party stuff. Um, and his parents basically, or someone in his family basically said, like, what? they're just going to send you back. You might as well go out there. 
and try to do it. And the way he tells a story, and he told this story before he was like, you know, the center, the core, the grand leader, is that he went back and coming from this background of kind of privilege and then basically being forced to like the work with these peasants in the countryside of China, in the revolutionary heartland, the Valley Forge type place, he had this kind of change of heart. He calls it a sublime and mystical experience. Those are his words. A transcendent experience where he basically comes to believe in two things. One, that the, like the, the bedrock people of China are actually quite good and that they deserve to have their, their lives bettered. And that the Communist Party of China, that there's been so many sacrifices made for these people and that communism is the way to bring them up. And so he, he petitions to join the party seven times. I think he tries to join the Communist Youth League eight times um, before he's finally let in because now he's kind of from a bad background. Um, and I think this background is part of the reason why a lot of Chinese people like him. They know that he was one of the people who suffered, not one of the people who inflicted the suffering in the Cultural Revolution. But he kind of goes forward from this and he gets this reputation of extreme austerity. This is a guy who is not corrupt. Now that I don't know if it's entirely warranted because family members of his have been found to embezzled money. And, you know, the New York Times got kicked out of China for reporting on this. Um, it's the story. If you heard recently about Bloomberg magazine having like shutting a story down, it was the same story. She do things family and other rich people in his clique. But he gets a reputation for being just kind of like the solid guy who actually believes in, in being for the people and who actually believes in not like being corrupt, which is what a lot of other people are, are doing at this time. When China's opening up, the money's flowing in. If you are a party member, it's really easy to take a cut of everything that happens. And he also has some special experiences where he's he's posted right across from Taiwan. So he has experience with that. He's posted in Shanghai. So he sees China at its kind of glitziest and glamiest and like the financial aspects of it. And then he, and he gets some experience kind of with the military too. And then he's sent to the party school and helps run that, the party theory, where he takes these like old communist theories really seriously. And how do we, how do we reconcile Marxism with this, like with essentially markets and the current international situation? And that's who he is up to his elevation as the chairman of the Communist Party of China and president of the People's Republic of China. This is another interesting thing. They always call him chairman in Chinese. Even like the New York Times will call him chairman when they write in Chinese, chairman Xi, because they recognize that the party label is actually the more important. Um, also, or general secretary, general secretary of the Communist Party of China, chairman of the Central Military Commission. They rarely call him president in, in Chinese. And so that's his background, him as a person. And in terms of what he did differently, he looks at China and his, he basically says, okay, under Mao, we had this time where we, we had the socialist revolution. We kicked the foreigners out. We united China and we, quote unquote, experimented. We explored different versions of socialism. And most of those, he kind of admits, didn't really work out. Right, 30 million people die in the Great Leap Forward and so on. But that leads to this new revolution under Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping comes in, and this is this is Xi Jinping's own narrative. Deng Xiaoping comes in and he allows Marcus to come in. He allows a more what they call quote unquote scientific experimentation process to begin, which allows the party to hold on to power and to act as the guiding vanguard of Chinese society while learning things from the West. Instead of just kind of sealing us off, we can try to learn from them and take what works from them and let our economy grow. 
And Deng Xiaoping had a famous statement. He said, we need to, on the international states, bide our time. The idea being that China's not ready to try to change the world, the conflict of things. We need to gather our strength, bide our time, until we'll be strong enough to start trying to change the world in the image we want it to be. Xi is basically saying, he calls, he, he comes in and just in 2017, he had this, this big meeting um, where all the party guys together and he says, we are now in this new era, is what he calls it, a new era. And what this new era means is that, that the time for biding our time and gathering our strength is over. China is now in a position where we can start making the world work for us instead of us just taking things from the world. We no longer need to hide. We should be proud of who we are and of what we can give the world. And we should be kind of merciless when it comes to, say, the people who are against us, the Taiwanese, separatists in Hong Kong, people in Xinjiang, but also people outside of the borders of China who or our own claim borders, right? Because Taiwan says they're not really part of it, depending on who you ask. And we need to try to control them as well. And that's, and that's where I start. Don't ask the WHO about that. Yeah, yeah, d- definitely not. <laughs> but that's why, like, this is where this concern about, you know, you read a lot about, like, interference and influence operations and United Front, these strategies that China has for trying to control, coerce, or corrupt what's going on in other countries. Because they don't, they don't really see a, a very big distinction between what's going on in the rest of the world and what's going on inside them. Um, in the Mao times, it was enough to seal yourself off, but they recognize that doesn't work. You fall behind technologically and they're really afraid of that. So if we're going to be open to the rest of the world, if we're going to be influenced by them, well, now the communist party of China is saying, actually, we need to start influencing them. Otherwise they will influence us. We'll lose our power. We'll lose the ideological competition. Um, Xi Jinping, in in the speech I translated, he has this phrase where he says, why did the Soviet Union fall? Why did the Communist Party of the Soviet Union disintegrate? Because they lost the ideological competition. This is a serious matter. That's what he says in this speech. And he's obsessed with the fall of the Soviet Union. And he's determined that he's not going to have, like, he's not going to be the guy He's not going to be Gorbachev. He's not going to be the guy that makes his glorious party with all of its history and all of its heritage. All these people who died, the millions and millions, have their deaths be for nothing. He's going to be the guy that makes sure that China stands, the party stands. And if that means changing the rest of the world to make his vision secure, then hell yes, he will do it. That's Xi Jinping. I'd like to ask you about... uh a related topic is in the news. So recently, uh, Senator Tom Cotton uh, made some statements regarding Chinese students studying in the United States mm-hmm. and whether there were some problems uh, with that and whether this was being used uh, basically as a, as a means of... Uh, you know, uh, uh, for nefarious purposes, uh, I'm going to just play you a little clip here and I'd like you to, to kind of respond to it. It's a scandal to me that we have trained so many of the Chinese Communist Party's brightest minds to go back to China to compete for our jobs, to take our business, and ultimately to steal our property and design weapons and other devices that can be used against the American people. So I think we need to take a very hard look at the visas that we give to Chinese nationals to come to the United States to study, especially at the postgraduate level in advanced scientific and technological fields. Okay, so uh, did, did you hear that? Yes, I did. Okay, uh, so... So what, what what would be your kind of general perspective on that? I know that... Well, can I ask you guys a question? I'm, I'm kind of curious because I've been thinking about this, writing about a, like this special issue for a while now. I'm kind of curious though. I mean, you guys are intelligent people, but you're not China focused or anything. What was your reaction when you heard that proposal? I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you on the, on, on the assumption that we're intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as a kind of indirect way of answering you. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember uh, 
I remember the 90s. Uh, it was a good time in the 90s. And in the 90s, um, there was a lot of uh, talk about the need to increase connections with China, culturally, uh, in particular, economically, through trade and other things. And one of the big arguments, of course, there were economic benefits for the United States that were supposed to come from this. But in addition, uh, one of the big arguments was that if we were to increase trade and cultural exchange and other things with China, uh, as as uh, uh, the Chinese people uh, became more prosperous and as they learned more about the West, that this would lead to a liberalization and opening of China and they would evolve, you know, towards a more Western type system, right? This, mm-hmm. was, this was a big time. And, um, you know, whatever the, whatever the plausibility of that theory in the 1990s, uh, 20 years later, it does not seem to have worked out that way. Uh, either, you know, the economic, certainly China has gotten a lot richer, uh, but this does not seem to have led them in a more liberal direction. In fact, you could argue that being richer has enabled them to be more repressive in certain ways. And similarly, uh, if peop- if Chinese students studying in the United States and then going back to China, you know, has led to some uh, tend, you know, trend towards, uh, you know, in- increased uh, democratization or liberalization or anything. I-, I don't see the I don't see the evidence for that. Mm. Um, so see, so that's, you know, that's half of the equation. And then the other half of the equation is you do have, you know, uh, I think Senator Cotton mentioned about uh, you know, but basically, uh, you training training people that will then go and use those skills for you know purposes hostile to America or whatever. So you know that I, I mean I, I'm not I can't say that I'm an expert on that, but um, I, I I will I guess to sum it up I would say that my reaction to his statements uh, at. Uh, the version of myself, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, I think would have reacted very differently than I do today. So there's, I think, two issues going on here, and they're useful to maybe decouple them a little bit. One is just this question of, is it wise to be training people in math and science that they might be building weapons who will then be used against the United States um, the Seventh Fleet, for example, um, or other forces is controlled by Pacific Command. And then the other question is this broader one of does connection with China lead to liberalization and should individuals be punished for what is going on at the geopolitical level, right? I guess there's kind of three questions. On this question of liberalization in China, connections, What's the point? I, I wrote an essay once for my personal blog. I have a personal blog called The Scholar Stage. And the essay is called Do Not Heed the Walking Dead. And the point I make in this essay is that back in the 90s, this was a very explicit argument, was that by trading with the Chinese, by having exchanges with them, we will have the chance to slowly, not not entirely, not automatically, but slowly bring them into our system. They will have, at the government level, they'll have an incentive to be what the Bush administration would call, quote, responsible stakeholder. And at the personal level, people might become more familiar with Western ideas, with liberalism. And there was this idea that if you have free markets in China, which they don't really, but if you had freer markets, that this would infect them with this spirit of liberty that would permeate their lives, and that it was unstoppable. Bill Clinton said that, you know, the idea of just getting the internet into China will be enough, because trying to control the internet will be like nailing jello to a wall. 
And I don't think this strategy, this attempt to kind of liberalize the Chinese people was a bad strategy. I think it may have worked. But the thing is, this is a two-player game. The enemy gets a vote. And the Communist Party of China realized what they were doing. They, were, we, they read the same speeches and the same arguments that we did. They knew exactly what we were trying to do. And it scared them. It scared them a lot. And so they reacted. Around 2008. 2008 is about the, the point where they reacted. They took several actions at that point. Starting in 2008, I would say from 2008 to 2014, they just did a, a, a series of things that were meant to um, control and stop what they described as cultural insecurity um, and to control what they called the ideological sphere. And this went from implementing new censorship technology on the internet to control, like to creating special parts of the Communist Party devoted specifically to students returning from the West, to pay, taking people like Xi Jinping and putting him in charge. Um, they put him in charge as a reaction to this Western strategy to, in their mind, cause chaos and destabilize China by promoting things like free markets, by promoting things like Western style journalism, by promoting things like Western constitutionalism. Um, there was a, there's a memo called Document 9 that was ferreted out of China and, and, and exposed, where the Communist Party of China basically lists eight ideological threats that must be controlled. And these are the kind of things that are on it, constitutionalism, free markets, um, universal human rights, these ideas and their advocates needed to be destroyed. And the people who did advocate them were destroyed, thrown in jail, silenced, and so on. So I don't think it was a bad strategy, but I do think we should have recognized far sooner that we, than we did that the communists had reacted. We had made a gambit and they foiled it. But all the way until like, even in 2015, you know, people like John McCain, who's not soft on foreign powers, going to the Shangri-La dialogue and saying things like, China has a choice, which road it's going to take. But the truth is they, they already chose. They chose probably eight years before then. And it took us a long time, too long to figure out the choice they're making. Now, for Chinese students, I, I'm very frustrated by this issue. I know it very personally. I, I went to university. I was very involved with Chinese student organizations when I was there. I Later, when I lived in Beijing, I was intimately in, uh, involved with tutoring and teaching kids who wanted to go to American universities, like teaching them things like AP U.S. history, so they would get those things in. And I would do a lot. I saw a lot of it from that side, what the process like from getting in. I did a lot of interviews with people coming back, who had been former students of mine, um, to see what their experience in America was like. And I was very frustrated with the experience they were having. Still am. And that's why I originally started writing about this back in 2015, 16, like, where these students, like, I, I kind of put it this way. Imagine if in 1960, 300,000 Russian Soviet citizens were coming to America, how would we treat them? How seriously would we treat this chance to give them an education, to open up their minds to some other part of the, like to the Western way of life? How important would it be for us that they are given a positive experience, that they had a positive impression of America, and they learned important things about civic life, rights, democracy, whatever, I think we would have taken it very seriously in 1960. We did not take it seriously in the 21st century. And as the 21st century has gone forward, Chinese students have had, I think, very, very bad experiences in the West where many of them come back hating America, hating everything about it. And it's mostly our fault, frankly. 
Uh, it's not entirely our fault. There's there's also just this problem of mass where the, like there's so many Chinese students at many universities where they they spend all their time in like a China bubble. They don't speak English. They some of them have worse English when they come back than when they left. They they understand America less they, than they did when they went. Um, and that's probably just a matter of like the the mass of Chinese that we send and the easiness in which you kind of people humans divide themselves up into little groups, but. The people, the universities themselves, mostly view Chinese students as cash cows. You know, there was a lot of talk about education bubble being popped in 2008, and the way the universities got out of it was through international students from India and China. And they charge them a lot more money, and then they don't do anything for them. They don't make sure they have good English. They don't um, give them programs to like help them understand American life, American civics, American anything. Um, they do sometimes have Chinese, they do have racist experience sometimes, and this is further compacted because a lot of the Chinese students that come over are really rich. And so you have these kids driving around and say, the University of Iowa on a Ferrari and then normal kid looks at that, you know, with their like little backpack and scooter and, and feels like, like kind of hates these Chinese kids. That's also part of the story. Um, so the administration's done nothing. The professors haven't done anything. We haven't taken this task seriously of trying to take these kids and give them an experience that would make them want to go back and say, yes, our country should be more like America. Instead, they go back and they say, actually, America is full of people who are terrible and racist and who I couldn't make any American friends and their system is chaotic. And then there's other things that make it bad, too, like social justice. They don't understand it. They don't get it. They, the campus wars have made it very hard on Chinese students. It alienates them. They feel like if that's what democracy means, if that's what they want, we don't want it. Um, so what does that mean practically though? Like I, I wrote for a long time trying to convince universities to take this seriously. Most of them haven't, very few. There's a few cases where they've tried my impulse is to say that we're probably better off restricting the number we accept if we can't give the ones we do a good experience. I would maybe not do it the way Khan wants to, though. I, I, like, I think there's many who come here for studying scientific subjects, often because that's the only thing their parents will let them study. Um, yeah. That, who are the Chinese students who get to study English? <laughs> well, right. So I, I think the the way to I, I frankly, I would want to reduce the number we accept and have much higher standard for who comes. Because in my experience, the Chinese students who have the best experience in America, the ones most likely to just immigrate, are the ones who already come with pretty good English. That's the first barrier. Um, it's hard to say, read the Federalist Papers like Tom Cotton wants you to if you don't speak English at all, or if you speak it poorly. Um, it's where it's quite easy to do to calculus in, you know, you don't need an extra language to, to use Roman numerals, I mean, Arabic numerals. And so I would, I would, if I was kind of magic wanding, changing it around, I would try to make the requirements more difficult. I would say maybe the top fourth of Chinese students should come. Um, the bottom three fourths, we don't treat them well. They go back to their own country bitter. And I think that's in the interests of us. I think it's not in our interest at all. But with that said, I do think it's in our interest to let people in who can have that experience here that they should have. And I don't think science versus like, like science versus not is the right dividing line. Um, and then the second part too, is that if you were to say, go to Silicon Valley and have this conversation, I believe many, many people in Silicon Valley would say, well, many of our best say engineers, many of our best people are former Chinese students. And if you stop them from coming here, then that means you're not going to, like they're just going to go to, they're just going to go to um, Zhongguansun, which is like the Silicon Valley of China and work over there. I would much rather have them be working here instead of over there. That's what, that's what the Silicon Valley people will tell you. And I think there's something to that. 
I think a, a really hard case, oh, they're studying like math or science or computing. So we, when I block them out, might be too extreme. Um, and one fifth of Chinese students end up living in America. So it's graduate students. They end up immigrating. And that's a net plus in terms of, you know, America versus China being stronger. Like we have really smart people who come and work for us, then that, that's good. I think we just need to think really hard about who are the people who stay, who are the people who go, and what can we do to incentivize the right kind of experiences for these students? Because no one thinks about it this way. Um, so that's my whole rant. Sorry to go off on that. Um. <laughs> no, 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 it's all right. Well, and, and you know, I know we're kind of going a little bit long here, that's but okay. I, I did, okay. did, did want to ask... So uh, you spent some time in Taiwan, and as we look at how different countries are faring under the coronavirus, how they've responded to it, Taiwan has been a real outlier in that they have, they seem to be very successful in the way that they have responded. Uh, there's not a lot of fatalities, and their economy hasn't suffered the way other countries have. You know, and and I don't know what how much expertise you have in this area, but what can we learn from Taiwan as the United States? What can we learn from their experience? Mm. I left Taiwan December of this of this last year, so just before the virus got out. Yeah, I mean, kind of bad timing, right? I kind of regret it <laughs> in some ways. Now I'm here in Washington D.C., you know, stuck in my room, and I a little bit bad timing. Um, but I pay pretty close attention and talk to the people over there, what's going on and how it is. Um, to an extent, it might be too late to learn lessons from Taiwan uh, because it's already so big here in the West, right? The methods they use work at smaller scale to a certain extent. Um, and part of Taiwan's success is their past experience. So the vice president of Taiwan is an epidemiologist. He was a man who was in charge of the SARS response 20 years ago. The Taiwanese government has built in like kind of like biosecurity safeguards because of that, because of that SARS experience, where on January 1st, they were already doing heightened checks of passengers from China for, with respiratory diseases because they had picked up through the Chinese internet these rumors and news that might be a new SARS outbreak. And so already on January 1st, before the Chinese government was saying anything really, at the time when the Chinese government was censoring things, they were already on the alert and they cut off travel with China like days before we did. Um, and they had this whole national system already in place. They took it seriously and they had to end up the, the Taiwanese people as well. They were ready to say like, go, go wear masks from day one. The minute that this became a thing, they're all wearing masks. We don't have that level of either institutional expertise or at the population level. We don't have that kind of like learned response. And at the level of people in charge, we also don't have that level of like people who have done this before in the way that you have in, say, South Korea or Taiwan. Um, but there's other things they've done to kind of like, I don't know how comfortable we are with what they do. So I had a friend, he has a podcast where he was describing this, what happened to him, where his someone at his company was infected, was one of the few who was infected. And so he was put under house quarantine for 14 days. And when this quarantine was happening, his cell phone battery went out. And 12 minutes later, the police knocked on his door to see if he was there, to see what was going on. They had been using his cell phone to track where he was, to make sure he had been doing his, cell, like his quarantine. And that's the kind of thing that might make Americans feel like this is a breach of our privacy laws, our civil liberties. Um, the Taiwanese don't care, but they they are um, 
willing to kind of make those calls. And I don't know how willing we are. If I was to say one thing though, like, like just one kind of simple thing that I think in Taiwan has made their government a little bit better than the ours has. Like Taiwan is similar to America. They also have a very ferocious culture war, very polarized society over identity issues. But in Taiwan, there's still this very deep sense that the government must be competent. And that government people who are not competent should be voted office, out of office for their failure in this regard. Here, we kind of have forgotten this because the stakes seem so big, right? Oh, you can't vote somebody for failing because then you won't get your Supreme Court justice that you need. Um, and this deeply disturbs me, this that, we're, that we can't essentially hold elected officials accountable because we're so worried about the partisan balance. That doesn't really matter if they're minimum level competent, just, you know, what letters next to their name. And Taiwan has this dynamic of this super partisanness, but they're, they're, the culture there is just a little bit more rooted in they still need to be able to produce results on the short term or we won't vote them in anymore. And I feel like there's very precious little of that attitude in America right now. Um, now I don't know if that can be changed on a dime, but I wish it would. Yeah, uh, my impression is that a lot of Americans don't believe that competent government is possible. And, you know, so therefore they either uh, put up with incompetence or, I mean, obviously there are movements to try and reduce government, uh, many of which I support. But, um, well, you know, I tend to be libertarian ish in my own government, I mean, my own positions, right? But, at some level, you just need to have people who can do their job. Um, right. And you can argue that certain jobs are better handled by market incentives instead of government fiat. But, fiat. <laughs> but at the end of the day, there has to be accountability. And that's what I feel like you don't have a lot of. In, in Asian governments, there's a lot of this. Even in countries like Japan, which I don't think is a remarkable country of, of say government competence but if somebody messes up they resign quickly there yeah to my knowledge uh I, you know one of the big mistakes i think in the united states was uh they screwed up the testing and you know there were multiple people multiple agencies that were involved in that screw up in different ways to my knowledge, uh, no one has either resigned or been fired <laughs> for that. Uh, yeah, there, yeah, there's just not this sense of accountability. And like, there's like multiple levels, right? All the way from President Trump to the FDA to the governor of, New I mean, the, the mayor of New York. Like all these people have just like messed up in very serious and avoidable ways, especially when you look at, say, what's happening in Korea or Taiwan. Or even Japan or Singapore, which was able to hold off the the infections for like longer. They had time. Like Singapore is now not doing very well, but they were able to hold it off for a few months and prepare, right? Um, and so I I'm not especially pleased with the American government. Now, with that said, though, there like there's people who want to say, well, then you should, you know, like this proves the Chinese system's better. I think that's a little bit silly. We're like three months into this crisis. Um, there was an outbreak in Harbin last week. We don't really know if the Chinese solution is sustainable long-term. Um, their data is obviously not quite true. It's, it's, it's not a complete lie because you couldn't hide it if it was, if, if it was happening in New York right now, it was happening in multiple Chinese cities. That would be too, too big to hide. But... In general, the Chinese government is not a very competent institution. Um, they're, they're not extremely competent. The, the, the leadership has a lot of trouble getting people to do what they want. And when they do get what they want done, they usually have to like throw people in jail and stuff. Um, some things they do better. Xi Jinping, I mentioned he comes from this military background. His father was a military guy. He's been able to reform the PLA very, very well. 
But when it comes to a topic he's not as familiar with, like say the Belt and Road, it's kind of a mess and he doesn't have the tools to fix it. And the system itself has so many perverse incentives. That's a little bit of a crapshoot. I, I, I know I know. look at the Chinese government and say like, oh, that's a model for how we should do everything. Um, but I think they have a little bit of a better sense that if they don't at least look more competent, they like the axes will be coming out for them. And in the West, I'm a little bit surprised to the extent at which that sense of we need to win this crisis, like we need to solve this, doesn't have the quite the same sense of urgency. Like I, I'm a little bit surprised that there's a lot of Westerners who want to fight this propaganda war of China because really, like, who has the best talking points in April 2020 doesn't matter. What will matter is in August 2020, who has the best outcomes. There'll be time to shape the narrative after you've won. In the middle of the fight, I think trying to outwin China on Twitter, which some American officials really are trying to do, is kind of a waste of time. No, no one is impressed by it. It's, it's mostly will be impressed by actually outcompeting them, which hopefully we can do. Uh, okay, well, uh, this is uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. There, there are many other topics that I think. Uh, we could discuss, uh, but in the interest of uh, time, I, I guess uh, I will just end with a lighter question that we ask a lot of our guests, which is the, to name some favorite uh, movie or TV show, cultural product that relates to the conversation. So, do you? This is obviously, you know, a, a vast subject, but is there is there a particular movie or TV show or something? Uh, about China or involving China that you would recommend? Um, yeah, so uh, definitely. Um, I'll do a little more lighthearted one instead of all these serious things. A lot of people recommend these like serious history movies, whatever. But I think if you want to understand a foreign culture, the best thing to do is watch their comedies. So I think one of the most revealing Chinese comedies is a movie called Lost on Journey. It's about a like peasant and a rich guy from Shanghai who have to take a trip across the country together. It's pretty funny. Um, and if you want to get a, a good sense of some of the divides in modern Chinese society and how they think about the world, I think this Lost on Journey film, even though it's 10 years old, it's still a pretty good um, movie for, for understanding that stuff. So that's a, that's a little slice of Chinese culture that a lot of readers, viewers might like if they can track it down. All right. Lost on Journey. Yes. Which, uh, yeah. All right. Well, so uh, our guest today has been Tanner Greer. Tanner, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to The Urban Cowboys.